When I was in seminary, there's one class that I had where my professor would pray. Now, typically in all of my classes, the professors would pray, but this one guy would pray in stereo. What I mean by that is we would all bow our heads. He would say, okay, let's pray before we dive in today. And we'd all bow our heads and we'd close our eyes. And then I would listen to his voice wander around the room. He would pray with his eyes open and he would pray as he walked around. So he'd be in over here and then he'd be in front and then he'd be behind us. He would just walk all around and his prayers were powerful. They were prayers that, that changed my life because I was in the class to learn something about theology and I ended up learning something about prayer. It was modeled to me out of this guy's life. It wasn't a class on prayer, but it was a class on prayer. I got to see this guy pray in a way that I've never seen anybody pray before. And I've heard a lot of people pray and probably so have you. And maybe you've had like a top 10 people in your life that you think to yourself, yeah, they're, they're good prayers. There's a reason that they are. This guy, this professor in my seminary had this ability to connect with God in front of us where it seemed like we weren't even there. And he was having an intimate conversation that at times became almost uncomfortable for us to listen in on. Prayer is an intimate thing. It's your conversation with the one person who literally knows everything about you. He knows who you are in public. He knows who you are in private. He knows what you tell others you are, and he, tell, he knows what you keep to yourself. And when you pray, you're talking to that person who literally knows everything about you. The more you talk to him, the more you become conscientious of this fact that you are an intimate conversation. Prayer can lead you into the most vulnerable positions that you could be in. This holds, by the way, the potential of building your relationship with God like nothing else. When you have that kind of an intimate conversation with somebody else, it will build you up or it will cause you to not want to spend time in prayer at all. Because it reveals yourself and it could make people feel uncomfortable. Now, after saying all of that, let me ask you this question. Can you imagine what it would have been like to sit and hear Jesus pray? It's no wonder the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. We would like to pray like you pray, because whatever we're doing doesn't sound like what you're doing. Something's different between us. They wanted to do it right, they wanted to do it better. And Jesus gives them a snippet of the Sermon on the Mount where he teaches them how to pray. So the first thing I wanna tell you about prayer is, number one, my prayers always reveal me. If you have your Bibles, you wanna turn there. Matthew 6, this is Sermon on the Mount. We're keeping our walk through the Sermon on the Mount as we study through. Um, and in, in this first point, Jesus enters into the subject of prayer. And he starts by going to the deep intimacy of what prayer is all about. Matthew 6, 5 says this. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say, they have received 
their reward. I think we got that passage up there. There you go. My prayers, first of all, reveal my heart for God. Jesus says, when you pray, you can pray like a what? Yeah, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, which means that when you pray, you could be like a hypocrite. He says that hypocrites are those who want to be seen or they want to be heard. When you pray, Jesus says, you gotta be careful that you understand and keep conscientious of the fact that you are having a conversation with Almighty God. By the way, did you know that some prayers just make God angry? <laughs> did you know that? I know, it's a crazy thought, isn't it? Let me give you one passage that just is amazing. It's Psalm 80, verse four. O Lord, the psalmist write, O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with what? Your people's prayers. He's not angry with them, he's angry with their people's, the, the people's prayers. Because when we pray, we apparently, according to Jesus, according to the psalmist, we can pray wrong. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the word hypocrite literally means actor. So don't pray like the hypocrites. And by the way, this word is also used not just of those who pray, but also of those who give. Remember, hypocrite was also used of those who give. They give so that they can be seen. I've got mine, have you got yours? Remember that illustration? It's that idea that uh, everybody's gonna see what I'm doing, uh, Ananias and Sapphira idea. Well, apparently this can also be done in the avenue of prayer. Our prayers need to be offered first and foremost to God. Now, after I say that, let me say it one more time, just in case I lost along the way. Our prayers, first and foremost, need to be offered to God. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, well, Craig, obviously, uh, where, where else are prayers offered to? Uh, let's think about that for a second. Some prayers are not offered to God. Here's how I know that. <clears throat> I'm guilty of it. There are I, I shudder to think how many times in my life I have actually prayed and not thought about what I said. Or I prayed and not thought about who I'm talking to. Now I know that's probably not you, but it is your pastor. Uh, it's like when I drive a car. You know, when I get in the car and I'm really tired, I'll like start at point A and I'll get to point Z, but I don't have any idea what happened in the in-between time. It's just like autopilot, right? I obey the rules, I do, well, maybe. I, but I get to where I'm going and I survive, but I don't really have any recollection of how I got there. Sometimes our prayers can be in the same way. One young minister from New England attended a fashionable Boston church and he heard an ornate prayer offered, and he described it as, quote, the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. When prayers are more concerned about the ones who hear or the ones who are speaking, they are prayers not offered to God. Prayer should usher us into the presence of Almighty God. Listen, God is not interested in the performance, he's only interested in the heart. There are people that, that when I come over to uh, eat or we, we, we go out to eat, they say, well, I'm not praying. Craig, you're the pastor. You should be praying. And it's like, seriously, come on. Like, what? You really should know me. And then you would know, like, you probably deserve to pray more than I do at this point. There's, there's an idea that based on who you are or how good you are at prayer, 
that's when you pray. But some of the best prayers I've ever heard are from people that have no idea how to put the these and the thous in the right place. They're just prayers from the heart offered to the God who saved them. God is not interested in the performance. He is interested in their hearts. Matthew 15, only um, a few chapters later, Matthew writes in his gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes, the people honor me with their lips, Jesus speaking, but their hearts are far from me. God is not interested in how polished our words are. He just wants to hear from our hearts. The genuineness God looks for is not in how well our words are put together. The genuineness God looks for is in the reality, the genuineness, the, the, the rawness of our hearts. My prayers will always reveal something about me. And the first thing they reveal is they reveal the reality of my relationship with God. Jesus goes on in verse six to say, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. A couple of things in there that I noticed. The first one is the word when. What does that word tell you? Why would Jesus use the word when? Starts out like, but when you pray, what does, he, what does he do? It's expected. He's assuming you're praying. When you pray, not if you pray, not when you get your gumption up to pray, not at the times when you feel like your life's falling apart and when you really need to pray, it's just when you pray. Whenever you pray, make sure that you are doing things, certain things, and then the second word that's used there a lot is, starts with an S, secret. This is also a word used in the giving context. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Same kind of context. It doesn't mean that when you give, you can't tell somebody that you're giving to them. That's, it's not, not supposed to be like everything's supposed to be like incognito and, and uh, you know, behind you know, a shroud. But it does mean that your goal in giving isn't to prop yourself up. Just like in prayer, your goal in giving is not to prop ourselves up. Our goal in praying <coughs> is to usher, our, usher ourselves and realize that we are ushering the people that we're praying with into the presence of God. It doesn't mean that it has to be secretized. But it does mean that prayer is primarily between, just like giving, primarily between you and God. What are some indications that your prayers might be improper? Well, he goes on to say in verse seven, and when you pray, <laughs> notice this, this is also great. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be honored for their many words. You know what that empty phrases there literally means? The word uh, is hatalagao, and it means to stutter or vain repetition. Saying the same thing over and over again because you think that the more you say it, the more God will pay attention to what you're saying. Uh, it's the idea of doing something out of rote, not realizing what you're exactly doing. Or doing something just because you think you should do it, but not engaging it with your brain. That's what the word vain repetition means. And apparently the Gentiles did it in idol worship all the time. They thought that the more they did, the more that they cried out, the more that they they screamed out or said the same or right phrases, they would get their God's attention. By the way, that is still happening today. In religions across the world, 
There are religions where they hurt themselves, they scream out, they do certain things in certain ways because they think that if they do it the right way, their God will listen. God is not that kind of a God. Not the one true living God. Now the irony here is that some people will pray certain prayers because they're, not, they're afraid that if they pray their own prayer, it'll be wrong or misunderstood or not as good. And the irony here is that one of the prayers we pray all the time, just so because it's a really like, it's a top 10 prayer. One of the top 10 prayers we pray as a church is the Lord's Prayer. And that's exactly what he follows up with. He says, don't pray with vain repetition. Instead, pray like this. And he's gonna teach us how to pray by using the Lord's Prayer. And we're gonna get into that in just one second. But we have a tendency to even use the Lord's Prayer like vain repetition. We don't even know what we're saying. People who don't even know God will know and say the Lord's Prayer because they think if they do it, they'll get God's attention. Even the Lord's Prayer can be empty phrases. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Verse eight, this is where I love when this gets interesting right here. Jesus says, don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that a great phrase? Don't think that you gotta be this polished, amazing seminary professor style, although his was completely intimate, it was obvious. But don't think you need to pray like Craig or the these and the thous. Don't think that. All you need to remember is be intimate because you don't have a God somewhere out there you're trying to get his attention. You have a father. And this father is the bestest father ever. He knows what you need even before you tell him. I love that. God is our father first. We'll get into that in just a minute. My prayers will reveal me and they'll reveal my thoughts about God. Before we get to the positive part, let me just finish off one more negative part. Our prayers reveal who we think God is. Our thoughts about him. What do your prayers reveal about the way you think about God? Here's some little list I put together for you. Some people, when they pray, they think of God like a Santa Claus. This is an egocentric prayer. If I pray and ask him enough things, he'll give it to me. Make me wealthy, keep me healthy, fill in what I miss on my never-ending shopping list. That's the idea of the Santa Claus. So whenever I pray to God, it's always, I need stuff. Maybe he doesn't know, and maybe he does, but chances are my prayers reveal that thought about God. The way that I pray reveals my perceptions of God. Another way is an overachieving coach. This is the idea of a legalistic God. That if I don't pray the right way or if I don't live the right way, he's not gonna listen to me, he's not gonna hear me, he's not gonna answer my prayer. So I better live right or he is not interested in me at all. So it's like a, a coach that is always after you to be better, be better, be better, or you'll never get to play on the team. This is not how a father, certainly not how our heavenly father operates. Some people pray and treat God like a pagan deity. 
This is just mindless words, ritualistic living, ritualistic words. Just you, you quote them out, and if you say the right word at the right time or you use the right title for the right prayer, God will hear you and he'll give you whatever you need. That's treating God like a pagan deity, not as a father. Some people treat, treat him like a grumpy grandpa. That means that they're always afraid of him. The fundamentalistic, I hate to put in that word up there because we are fundamental, meaning that we believe the Bible is the true, inspired, living, active word of God. But that can be taken to an extreme where we become so enveloped by what we believe that we forget about the people we love. Grumpy grandpas, sometimes uh, we have more fear of God than we do have love for him. Some people treat God like a lifeguard. Whenever they're in trouble, they pray to him, they make deals with him. Uh, by the way, this is not always a bad thing to do. Sometimes, sometimes this leads to good things. Um, Martin Luther began the Reformation this way, uh, tossed off his horse in the middle of a, a lightning storm, and he prayed and he said, if you let me survive, I'll become a monk. And that began his journey uh, to lead to the Protestant Reformation, but he had no idea at the time that it would. Um, but if you see God as a lifeguard, it's always getting you out of trouble. And then once you get out of trouble, leave them on the shelf till you need them again. And then the last one is absent father. This is the agnostic. God began me. He gave me a beginning, but not that interested in my life ever since. Agnostic will say God began the world, but then he became absent after that. It's just kind of things roll on their own. But the God of the Bible is intimately involved in every aspect, not only of the world around us, but your particular individual life. So a right view is God is a safe father and you are free to run to him anytime. In fact, when you pray means we should be doing it on a regular basis. So what should my prayers actually do? Well, my prayers should proclaim God. The value, the first value is in the very first line Jesus gives us in Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. First two words are our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, this is not, you may read this and you may say, well, this is the only prayer we should pray. Jesus said, this is, this is the prayer that, uh, that we should pray. So we should always pray the Lord's Prayer. I would highly, highly uh, uh, discourage you from going down that road. Why? Because it turns it into a ritualistic prayer that we're not supposed to be doing in the first place. And number two, in the Lord's Prayer, we're supposed to ask for forgiveness. Who's the only person who ever lived that did not need to ask for forgiveness? Jesus. So he is not telling us, pray this prayer in this way. He's giving us a pattern to follow so that we can understand what our prayers need to look like um, if we are to grow as believers. Value one is God is our father first. This is an intimate idea of God. And by the way, when Jesus prayed this prayer, all the Jews listening would have said, whoa, let's just stop at the first. Are you saying that we should call Yahweh God our father? And Jesus would say that's absolutely true. And yet in the Old Testament, God as father occurs very little. In fact, God as mother occurs once in a while. God is, but it's always a euphemism. It's always like, this is a characteristic of God. But in the New Testament, God as father occurs all over the place. In fact, Jesus talks to God as father his entire 
um, written testimony in the New Testament. Every time Jesus talks about God, he talks about him as father except for one time. I bet you can guess when that was. When he was hanging on the cross, when he was dying for our sins, the only time Jesus said something different was he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know why the difference was there? Because he was dying for our sins. Our sins, my sins caused a separation. I can't explain it theologically, I'm just not that smart. But my sins caused a separation between Jesus and his father that had never occurred and never will occur again in history on that day when Jesus died for my sins. With this prayer, Jesus gives us permission to call God our Father. First and foremost, God is uniquely the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus, uh, God is the Father of Jesus Christ, praying our Father puts us into the category of people who identify with Jesus. When Jesus says our Father, he's saying this is my Father that we're talking to. Now, if you wanna pray, let's understand, he's our father. So when we're talking to God, that God that Jesus talked to is the same God we talk to. It's important, you may think to yourself, why are you, why are you picking this apart so much? Because if we don't recognize that Jesus is the son of God, we will not understand that God is our father. The book of 1 John is all about this, by the way. Uh, John 8, 19, before we get to 1 John, John 8, 19 says this. They said to him, therefore, who is your father? Talking to Jesus. Jesus answered and said, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would know who else? You would know my father also. Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. God is my father. And if you believe in this one true living God, God is our father and Jesus is our brother. We are in the family of God. Seeing God in this intimate way makes this religion, Christianity different from every other religion on the planet. This is the key, Jesus is the key factor. If you think to yourself, well, every religion must be the same, they can't possibly be. Because Jesus says Christianity is the only religion where God is my father, and if you come to him through me, God is our father. In fact, Jesus would later on say, no one comes to the father except through me. Seeing God as our father is blatant in scripture. Jesus and Paul both refer to this on a regular basis. Romans eight is one of my favorite, you probably know this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, speaking to us as a church, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as what church? Sons, daughters, fill in the blank, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what church? If we don't come to God as our father through Jesus Christ, who is our brother, God is not our father, Jesus is not our brother, and we are not in a relationship with the one true living God. Jesus is calling us into the family when he says, our father. We are called children of God. Before this, we are called, by the way, enemies of God. But Jesus reconciles us, makes us right with God through his death on the cross. 
Family is not the closest illustration that Jesus is using here. That's not the point. Family is not the closest illustration. Family was created to illustrate this point. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve were created, God created family for the purpose of having us, image of God bearers, in his family. Family was created for the purpose of understanding we have families here, but God is our father, our heavenly father. Think about how Jesus walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and probably it wasn't, um, it wasn't an angel. It was, it, was, it was a Christophany. You don't care about that. But it was, a, it was a, um, a theophany, if you want to call it that. It was a pre-incarnate form of God that walked with, Jesus, or walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, which would have been Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only physical form of God. Make sense? Jesus walks with Adam and Eve in the garden, and when he does... Adam and Eve know nothing about life. They're, they're, poof, all of a sudden they're here. Both of them. Who do you think taught them what life is all about? Who do you think took the time to, to tutor them so that they could understand what each other were for, what the, how the, the ground would work, how things would grow, what they are to do as keepers of the garden, birds and the bees. Where do you think they got all this information from? It wasn't like just try it out until it works. Jesus walked with them on a regular basis and like a father would, Jesus becomes the mouthpiece of the father to explain to Adam and Eve all the things about life that they would need to know about. Everything Adam and Eve understood about life was through their time spent with God. Adam and Eve came to understand this pre-incarnate Christ as their brother, their extended families. Even boundaries were given to them by God, just like a father would. Eat from every tree of the garden, but don't eat from that one, or there will be punishment. I think some people have a hard time seeing God as father for a variety of different reasons, but maybe one of them is because we live in a fallen world and we have a lot of bad examples of fathers. There are an enormous amount of families growing up, wives without their husbands and children without their fathers because they are bad examples of what fathers should be. But I want you to know that God is our father, meaning that if you want to see a good example of a father, look at how God treats us. God is the quintessential perfect father. And first and foremost, he is our father. Value number two, we understand in the Lord's prayer that God is unique or God is holy. Pray then like this, Jesus said, our father in heaven and the first thing he says, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means holy. Holy means set apart or unique. Uh, You are chosen people. You remember that verse? You are chosen people, meaning that you have been pulled out of the world and you've been put into the kingdom of God. When you accept Christ as your savior, you are a unique group of people, holy. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we are perfect and better than everybody else. It simply means that we are chosen, we are unique. And when Jesus says, holy is your name, he's saying that the one name of God is unique. There's no other name like it. Preaching a message like this is really countercultural because I want you to know that you live in a world that says there's lots of gods and they all go by different names. That cannot possibly be true. Imagine this. 
I know the owner of a very expensive restaurant, which by the way, I do not. But let's say I did, all right? You want to go out to a very expensive restaurant with your spouse or girlfriend or just by yourself, whatever. You wanted to check out the restaurant. You know there's no way you're getting into that restaurant unless you know somebody. So you come to me and you say, Craig, I really want to go out. And I say, listen, I know this perfect restaurant. You can get in there. But you've got to call them and reserve a spot. And don't forget to tell them you know me. The one time in your life you, go, you can actually get anywhere with that phrase, all right? So you know me. So you show up at the restaurant, you've got a reserved seat, you come in and they say, I, I don't understand, how, how, are you, how are you getting in here? And then, and then you name drop. You say, Craig Jarvis sent me over. And they say, oh, Craig Jarvis. Well, come over here. This is our best table. This is, see why this could never actually be true, right? So come over here, this is our best table. You know the right person here, we, we can get you in. Now, if you came in there and you said, <clears throat> Pat Neal, they would say, Pat who now? Who do you want me to pat? I don't understand what you're saying right now. Pat what? No, Pat Neal sent me over. Pat Neal said you'd give me a seat. I don't know, Pat Neal, there's the door. Get on your way out, right? Which is only funny because Pat knows all the nice restaurants in town and I know none of them. <laughs> You won't get anywhere if you use the wrong name. Jesus is saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why? Because that is the only name for God. If you're planning to get to, get to heaven any other way, through any other name, it will not work. Jesus only lifted up one name. Jesus only prayed to one Father. It is not Buddha, Ra, Allah. Jesus prayed to the one true living God. And if we are to get into heaven or have a relationship with God our Father, we have to be talking to the same person that Jesus did. Listen to this verse, and this is the first John verse, 2, verse 22. It's not easy to read this. Who is the liar? The liar is he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's the sent one. This person is the anti-Christ. He, he who denies what? He who denies the Father and the Son. You think you can get to heaven not through Jesus, then you're not just denying Jesus. According to the word of God, you're denying both the Father and the Son. Read on. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Prayers that God hears are offered by Christians through Jesus to the one Father. We can find our salvation in no one else. There is no other name. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 4. This Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he uses God's name an enormous amount of times because God, that name, our Father, through Jesus, is the name of the one true God. Why do we recognize God's holiness in our prayer? Simply because we recognize he is the one true living God. He is unique. He is completely separate. There is no other God other than him. And there's no other heaven 
There's no other promises except through him. Value number three, we seek the kingdom first. Verse 10, your kingdom come, Jesus goes on to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been dealing through these uh, Sermon on the Mount messages. Your kingdom come is the idea that God's rule would be 